0: Thank you so much, choir, for blessing us with that excellent song of preparation. And now we invite you, if you would, join us in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I want to read a few verses, verses 15 through 18, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly, correctly. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. As we continue to wrestle with the borrowed theme that I gathered from Frederick Beekner in his book entitled The Faces of Jesus in which he provides an exposition of how Jesus is seen through the eyes, lenses, of the four gospel writers. In my own reading and contemplation I discovered that that same theme could yet be applied to the Easter season and particularly the week that leads to the crucifixion that through various persons lenses we can see diverse faces of Jesus. And this afternoon I want to talk about the face of choice. The face of choice or one could likewise provide the title the face of the next chapter. The face of the next chapter. Of the diverse stories that exist in the New Testament and particularly in the Gospel of John, there's a plethora of various stories that can give us this face of choice. None seems more how should I say brutal, confronting than the story of this Samaritan woman in this fourth chapter of John's Gospel. The story is often told from the upside and the upside being the recognition that the woman needs salvation. There's no rebuttal to that. The recognition that the woman has committed what arguably may be an act of adultery. And I don't know if I would totally agree with that. The other side of the story is often told that when the woman meets Jesus face to face, there is this confrontation that Jesus brings that brings about a conviction in the heart of an individual. One suggests that one cannot come face to face with Jesus and remain the same once you leave, but something has to happen. Inevitably, a choice has to be made in the context of the individual's mind. Jesus poses his own diagnosis of this woman after beginning in verse seven and concluding in verse 14 a bit of a dialogue that seems to house in its context a dualism throughout the entire pericope. Or dualism that suggests that there's something that's often going on and sometimes it's at tension with the other. For example, Jesus begins by talking about a gift that God has to give and then he switches the conversation and talks about the giver if the woman only knew who was offering the gift. There's another dualism, is this action where Jesus at the well confronts the woman by merely asking for a drink of water, but his objective is to convict the woman by eventually having her realize that her soul lacks something along with her body needing something. There's another phase of dualism. Jesus seems to want to bring to the surface what really is the woman's problem, and that is sin, or better described, a shortcoming of God's expectation. He knows that the only way to deal with sin is to likewise offer salvation. For salvation provides the way out into light from a dark context of existence. But then there's another dualism that arises in the text. Jesus, as he confronts the woman, the woman wants to talk about external water. Do you understand our father's well here, Jacob, what it brings to us and for us? And Jesus shifts the conversation by saying, I really could care less about your external well, but if you get what I have, I will give you something that will change your internal well, it will spring up into a well of water that will consistently endure into everlasting life. Jesus has the philosophical audacity to pull eternity into the existential and then throw it back into eternity. He brings heaven down where she is and then lets her know this is just a drop of what you can have and then he sends it back into eternity. He reminds us that throughout this text, there's a bit of a tension, and the woman sort of catches it by trying to divert the conversation to religion and racism. He begins, or she begins by saying, how can you being a Jew ask me, being a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And then she continues to argue, as we'll talk about next week, Uh, We worship Samaritans at Mount Gisarum and you Jews worship in Jerusalem. We have two different opinions about worship and where it should be. Jesus wants to highlight when you know God, it doesn't care, it doesn't matter where you're worshiping. For they that worship him, later he will tell her, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I don't know about you, but I've come to realize my greatest times of celebration hadn't always been in the church house. But I've had church at my own house. I've had church out in the woods. I've had church riding in the car. I've even had church in the bathroom taking the shower. I mean, you don't have to be in a church building to enjoy the everlasting, loving, caring, extensive joy of God. The woman obviously catches what Jesus is saying because in the 15th verse, she says, sir, this what you're talking about is exactly what I need. It's what I want. But she misses the eternal significance of it. She says, I want what you're giving so that I don't have to come back to this well again. So give me what you have. And notice between verse 14 and 15, Jesus, because of who he is, recognizes she not catching the message. So let me shift the focus to what really is the matter at hand understand that we meet every day, possibly I should say every day, persons who are just like this woman at the well. They are looking for something that would bring their soul some satisfaction. They are looking for something that would give them a peace of mind. They are searching for someone who will make them and help them realize that they are full and human and they can live out the fullness of what life truly is, they are looking for that one someone or somebody who can help them run this race called life. And here she is, a depiction of what humanity really is. And in between verse 14 and 15, Jesus does the one thing and pushes her to do the one thing that you and I cannot relegate to someone else to do for us. She has to make a choice. He hyphens the expectation and hyphens the challenge by shifting the conversation and says in verse 15, go get your husband and bring him back here. Before you get to verse 16, think for a moment. There's a pause in there. And the pause is, for the first time I would contend in this woman's life, someone has actually challenged her. You need to decide which direction you're going to go. You have become too preoccupied with your failures of yesterday. Her desire is, how can I close the chapter on yesterday and begin to write a new chapter in my life today? I know tomorrow is not promised, but what can I record for today? Do you know how many people that you and I encountered on a regular who are really trying to close the chapter to yesterday? But because yesterday has so many hurts and so many disappointments, it is almost consistently incarcerating them, holding them hostage to a point where they can't seem to break themselves free. And all of the effort that appears that you and I are making to help them turn the page, close that door, nail that coffin shut on yesterday's disappointments just does not seem to happen, and we might want to know why is her situation so grave? Why does Jesus address this issue? Because it's the underlining issue in her soul, being relational. But, but, but wait a minute! Unfortunately, historically those who have taken the position of being classical, orthodox, traditional Christian scholars, they write this woman off to a point as nothing more than a mere adulteress who marries five different times. But I want to raise an issue for you. I want to flip the text And instead of interpreting it from the top down, I want to look at the text from the bottom up. And here's what I'm saying. The woman lives in a patriarchal society where the man makes the rules. He runs the house. She can't help it because even in the mosaic construct of law, it's all centered around the male first and the subversive and submissiveness of the female second. Girlfriend is at a disadvantage no matter how you look at it. How do you know that, preacher? Would you listen very closely to Deuteronomy chapter 24? And I wanna show you something in the text that we probably never consider and I don't think scholars want to consider Because it means then that we have to look at the text through a different set of lenses instead of the patriarchal status quo advantage standpoint of seeing the text where it keeps you in your place. Listen to the text. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens, L- let me just pull up right there, and it happens, that means that if he takes her and gets up one more and decided, you know what, you just don't look like you used to and I need to replace you, here's your bill of divorce. You know what, I noticed last week your hair's starting to gray at the roots and I'm not interested in being with a sister that got gray hair. Here's your bill of divorce. You know what? I discovered that you done put on a little weight in these last couple of years. I'm not interested in something new that you put. Here is your bill of divorce. Or you know what? I just want something new. Ain't nothing wrong with you. I just want something new. Here is your bill of divorce. Here it is right here. Right here in the text. Look look at the text. Look at the text. When he marries her, it just happens that he finds no favor in her. That he decides that maybe she doesn't have any more favor in his sight and he doesn't have any more favor in her sight. Look what the text says. It's not that, it's in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, you notice the text. It's what I see, man. It's not what we see, man and woman. It's what I see. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a lopsided law for a bill of divorce I know it's hard for y'all to see this Because it's in the Bible But because it's in the Bible That's the reason why I got to tell you What it really says It's what I see Look at the text So you can't say that I went to hear Reverend Murphy today And he said something different Here it is right here in the text Look at the text Do you see it? And writes her a certificate of divorce Here it is And puts it in her hand And sends her out from His house Now you, You can come to 4704 Lehigh Court And I can almost guarantee you That if I tell everybody that this is my house Uh Barbara going to correct that real quick. This is our house. If, if my memory serves me correctly, my name also went on that mortgage application. This is our stuff. But his house. Now, 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 you might say, "What what's that got to do to text? Well, if you go fast forward back to John chapter 4, she's married five times because every husband has decided that she doesn't live up to his expectation, so he gives her a bill of divorce and moves her on and moves her on and moves her on, marginalizing her in her own community that's small and you know how it is when we grow up in small communities everybody knows your business no matter how much you try to keep it secret if just one alphabet leaks out it's all over the whole city everybody knows so every time she comes out in public everybody knows oh that's that's the girl with five ex husbands And Jesus says, the one you got now ain't really your husband. She's she's in a vicarious position. She's in a state where you and I can be critical of her, but let me serve notice. Be careful if you become critical of her because you haven't walked in her shoes. I know Jesus doesn't want us, God doesn't want us to have to marry, divorce, marry, divorce, probably not five times because marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the relationship between God and humanity, that God marries us, we marry God, and nothing should ever be able to break us apart. That's the reason why let no man put us asunder, says the law that we read in terms of marriage. But God also knows when reality sets in, Sometimes we take even the law of God and use it to our own advantage. And I want to submit to you, that's exactly what has happened to this woman's life. And Jesus says, part of your problem is being relational. You have a difficult time identifying who actually wants to love you and care for you and help you. We came to a point this morning, we recognize that when Jesus confronts this woman and he says to her, go get your husband, she says, I don't don't have a husband. That's the first time that perhaps she has been honest with herself. And maybe you and I are at a crossroads in our own journey. We have come through a space where we're trying to turn the page on yesterday, and we'd like to catapult into tomorrow, but we have a difficult time turning the page because we are not willing to make the choice. And choice is risky. Choice is risky because we enter into the unknown. We really don't know what lies ahead, but let me ask you this question. If making a choice move forward, it can't be any worse than staying where you are or going backwards. That's what Moses tries to encourage or God tries to encourage Israel through Moses. Listen, you, you got a choice. You can go back to Egypt, but why are you going to go back into bondage? When you're right here at your destiny, turn the page on yesterday and move out and move forward. And their argument might be, but there's a red sea ahead of us and we can't get over that. And God says to Moses, don't even worry about that. That's my job. Let me handle that. All I need for you to do is make a decision to move forward. And maybe that's where you are. God says, I want you to do is just decide I'm going to move forward and don't go backwards because you already know what's behind you. All I want you to do is see what's ahead of you. We don't like to make a choice, but when we do, it's revelatory. It it means that when God told Israel, if you go ahead and move forward, and even though there's a red sea there, God used Moses and says to help them see what mightily can take place. When you move forward, Moses, that which is in your hand, stretch it out. And Moses stretches out his hand, and God in return responds by coming down with a wind and moving up the waters on both sides. And to make sure that even though they're walking over and there may be a fear that the water might come back, God holds the trouble at bay until you clear the dry ground to get yourself over the victory. Because God says, I don't ever want you to go backwards, but I want you to move forward in my name. It's risky, but it's revelatory. That's when God does great things for you like you never would imagine. That's when he does the miraculous open doors, shut doors, make sure that you don't become overcome, but you've got to make a choice. But it's also rewarding. It's rewarding because you choose not to stay where you are but to risk. 2 Kings chapter 7 tells a story of four lepers who are sitting at the city entrance gate and they're wrestling with what should we do? If we stay here where we are, we know we're going to die. But if we move into the city, there's a good chance that the enemy there, the Arameans, may likewise kill us. So what should we do? My own spiritual imagination says, as they dialogue with one another, does it really make sense for us just to sit here, A, I'm hungry and there ain't no food here, B, I know they don't want me in the town, but I've got to find a way to get salvation, and C, I don't know about y'all, but I'm going into town just to see what happens. Now, what they didn't know was because they made a choice, God providentially had already knew what their choice would be. So he sent the sound Of an encroaching army That would come into town And frighten the Arameans To the point where they picked up And left everything behind All they were trying to do was save their life When the leopards got in town They come to realize ain't nobody in town But they left all the filet young All the t-bones, all the ribeyes All the collard greens all the They left everything right there And they needed food Because they were suffering from a famine And they looked at One another and said aren't you glad we made a Choice to move forward and not to Stay where they are because God Will go ahead of you And open some doors If you make the choice They were so blessed When they made the choice that when they got in town One of them must have suggested We can't tell nobody anything about this We have got to keep this all to ourselves Look at all the food we have And another says oh no you, You can't do that When God blesses you, you can't keep that to yourself. In fact another one says you know what We got to write this down and then we got to go back to town And we got to tell everybody look what Jehovah has done for us Look at how Yahweh has made a way out of no way Look at how God has blessed And I'm just here to tell you when you make a choice to do God's will And to move for God will open some doors God will rain down some bread God will provide some water He will give you everything But don't keep the blessing to yourself tell somebody I know what it means to have your back against the wall I know what it means not to know how the day gonna turn out I know what it means when you're empty uh, on your empty state but when you trust God and when God blesses you you got to tell somebody the Lord is good all the time and all the time God is good And so now this woman at the well is faced with a choice, and she makes it. She makes it, I know, because if you read what Jesus said, he says, you have spoken correctly. You've had five husbands. Neither the one you have now is yours. You have spoken correctly. But verse 19 says, and the woman says, you must be a prophet. Because only a prophet can look beneath the surface of my skin and see what's going on in my soul. We learned this morning in the text, and let me share with you that there's a couple things that Jesus teaches us, and then I'm done. Because sometimes our problem is when we are at the crossroads, we're not willing to look at ourselves genuinely and see and make an assessment of who we really are. We want others to do it, but we, sometimes God says, I need for you to be honest and look at yourself in that mirror and tell yourself, I got some stuff I need to deal with. And here it is. Jesus says, when you get to the crossroads and you find yourself in a dilemma where you don't want to make a choice, listen, confront what hinders you. So here's the question, how honest are you with yourself? Maybe the problem is not everybody else. Maybe everybody else is not really your hindrance. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe you're the one who hasn't garnished enough faith to step out and launch into the deep. And here God is trying to stretch you because God is amazingly the kind of God who won't, most of the time, let you see what's ahead. It would be nice if God told us every step, what the next step would be and how it would look, but then I wouldn't be walking by faith. I'd be walking by sight. But when I have to trust the God who opens the door, I've got to believe that God who paved the way is the same God who makes a way. And if he does that, I just got to trust him. I got to, Grandmama said it right. I got to hold to God's unchanging hand. And so when I look in the mirror, I got to confront what hinders me, and it could be me. It could be could be one of those five girls that I used to date. It could be one of those five guys I used to date. It could be the girl or the guy that I'm dating now. It could be the job that I'm working at. It could be a number of things that I have to come face to face with and confront and recognize it could be hindering me. But I like to submit that our biggest hindrance is really not anybody else. It's It's for the most time, us. So Jesus forces her to have to look at herself and make a choice. Do I want to keep coming back to this well for just water that will feed my body, or do I now need something that will feed my soul? Not only must I confront what hinders me, but I must confess what hurts me. I told them this morning in a very humorous way, this is what you got to do sometimes. You have to kind of tell people sometimes when they actually are hurting you. Women stay in domestic violence because they eventually become convinced that the person that's violating them, hurting them, injuring them, will eventually get better. Statistically, he or she won't get any better. They're not willing to actually come face to face and confront and tell them how they're injuring them. And then when they do, the perpetrator is generally so smooth in convincing her that it won't happen again. And you know that story, it happens again and again and again. I think there is something to be said about having a little roughness around the edges sometimes. Now, th- I probably shouldn't say this in the public forum like church because I'm almost certain somebody's going to take it wrong. Um, but I, I also got a gut feeling you'll catch my drift in the illustration. Here's what I mean. Uh, he hits her for the first time. She goes to the kitchen, gets an iron cast skillet, <laughs> comes back and cracks him up on side the head, he hits again, she hits again. He finally gets the message, ain't no controlling of her, I got to let this go. Now, that's, that's not the optimal thing I would suggest that you do, but there is something about her being rough around the edges that sent a signal to him that you're not going to hurt me anymore. You might have got away with it that time, but you'll notice I'm going to hit you back again. And I don't know about you, but listen, when I was a little boy, I was a frail little thing growing up. I really wasn't as big as I am now. Of course, we won't talk about that, why I'm as big as I am now. But when I was growing up, uh, this is it, he was, a, at this time, we didn't use these terms, but this is what it was. He was a bully. And he bullied me real good. Man, he would just beat me every day. I mean, just humiliate me. At first, you know, I just didn't want to fight him. Didn't just want to do anything. And so I had an uncle who saw him beat me up one day. And he did. He beat he beat. He beat bro man down. He beat him down. He took me back to the house, grabbed me, once again, I wouldn't recommend this as a first option, grabbed me in the column and told me, if you don't go back out there and beat that blankety blank, I'm going to beat your blankety blank. So when I went back out, he was gone. Came back the next day, though, he was there. He did it again. Church, I don't know where I got the inspiration from. I don't know, but listen, I did everything I could do. I fought, I picked up rocks, I threw dust, sand, I did everything I could. But you know what happened? Fighting back sent the message. man and grown up just a little bit in 24 hours. I'm just saying, sometimes you have to tell people who hurt you that enough is enough and you're not going to do this anymore. And you have to shut that door and not be intimidated about who they are. You have to confront what hinders you, but you also have to confess what hurts you. And even those whom you love so much that might be hurting, you have to tell them. Not anymore. But then finally you have to choose what rewards you. And sometimes that reward is away from the very people that you desire to be with. I want to close by making three additional points that I didn't do this morning and I purposely held it because I want us to see in the text. When you look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 I want you to notice something. Notice that Jesus identified that she needed repentance, that she had a relational issue. But here's what I want to lift up for you, church. In her community, the word koinonia would have been significant. That meant community, communion, one. That meant that in this small geographical space, we are responsible for caring and taking care of each other. Now, we understood that pretty fully more, particularly in the African-American community, a generation ago, because we lived in small communities that were predominantly us. We were not suburbians. We lived in small communities, and you had to take care of, particularly when we lived in the rural area, you had to take care of one another. So here's what, here's what I'm pushing toward. The woman, knowing that everyone knew her business, could not receive what she needed because the community itself did not have a loving understanding of failure. So watch what Jesus does. Jesus critiques the woman without condemning the woman. He says to her, rightly you have said, you've had five in the past and the one you have now is not yours that's not a condemnation he just simply critiques what her situation is to offer her the saving grace that God has and I'm trying to make this point as a church community we must stop condemning people who do make errors just like you and I we must stop condemning people who fall short of our own expectation, just like you and I. We must stop condemning people because only God can provide righteous judgment unlike you and I. But Jesus said it's okay to, it's okay to critique because in critiquing, you can bring back forth critical but yet constructive criticism in the sense that you can help them grow out of their own failure and that's what community is about understanding that i fell on my face look at this woman jesus saw her and he says i'm not gonna throw you back to the wolves but i'm gonna look beyond your fault and see your need." And if it had not been for the grace and the mercy of God who looked beyond our fault and saw our need. As much as we would like to sit up in here and think that we have the most cleanest righteous record We fall under the conviction of Paul's writing in Romans 3 and Romans 6. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus not only critiques without condemning, but Jesus connects without crushing. See, she went out to the well, not just to draw water, I'm convinced, But it was a therapeutic moment to get away from all of the negative criticism about her lifestyle back in town. How do I know that? Look what time she goes to draw water at noon when no one else would be there. As I told him this morning, it's almost like uh, she lived in Woodbridge but worked in Tyson's. And she did that because when she got to work at Tyson's, nobody knew her history. She was happy to get to her job because no one could criticize her. But she dread coming back because she knew what she was coming back to. Except this day when she got to work, she met a new supervisor. She met a new boss. She met a new therapist. And his name was not Zygmunt Freud. His name was not Carl Jung. But his name is Jesus. Emmanuel God with us. But he never crushed her. He connected with her. He found a way to look at her issue and he sought the open door opportunity to let her know I'm with you. I feel you. I'm where you are. What do you need for me to do? And people are looking for us to connect to them. True story. Fact. Millennials no longer like traditional church because they say people who come to traditional church are hypocritical. And they say we're hypocritical because we laugh and shout and celebrate with each other in the worship service Then we talk about, condemn, and ostracize and beat each other up outside of the worship service. Remember... They still ride home with us in the car, so they still hear us when we say, "You see, Dick so and so pants." when not that messed up? They still see it. I'm just, but they're looking for connection. Uh, true story young lady came to my house wanted me to baptize her great she had on these jeans that had these holes all through them. and I, I just said why, why, why you got them holes in your pants your daddy let you out here with all them holes in your pants true story went back and told her parents I judged her now from my eyesight I didn't think I did but my eyesight doesn't count it's what she saw She saw that I judged her because of her pants, but she was trying to connect with me. She picked me out of everybody else she knew to baptize her and she was trying to connect. And what did I do? I scented on holes in her pants. Do you get my point? Millennials are saying, don't look at what I got on. Do like Jesus did, look deeper beneath my skin and see what's going on in my soul I missed I missed my golden opportunity to baptize a child into the kingdom of God I prayed that she, somebody did but I missed the chance of having the joy of doing that because what I did was crushed her rather than connect to her so Jesus is saying don't do that here's the final thing then we're done Notice what Jesus does. He conforms her without contaminating her. When Jesus dialogues with her about water and about the gift, and then he tells her, he says, you have spoken correctly. The very language of you have spoken correctly says to her, now let me help conform you instead of contaminating you with religious jargon. Watch this. When we are witnessing the people, we are notorious for saying, the Bible says. Now, I know you're gonna say what we're supposed to say, Reverend, it's what the Bible says. Read the gospels and notice how amazingly Jesus used this thing called parables. He could take an actual principle of scripture and spin it in a story because he's not interested in contaminating that person's idea about a particular religiosity. What he's trying to do is conform their life from a space of being in darkness to now being in a space of light. And what I challenge you and I to do is stop beating people over the head with the Bible when you don't even know the verses you're quoting anyway. You don't even know the context of those verses. We just quote stuff. You don't even know why the person said it in the text. But here's a better way. I know that Bible verse and I want to quote it. But instead of quoting it, let me live it. Let me express it. Let me convey it. Because people call us religious quack all kind of adjectives they use to describe us because we misuse scripture. Now, how do I know that? Because that's what they did in this woman's life. They took the bill of divorce and misused it with this woman and five times threw her out and marginalized her and it took Jesus to come along and conform her life without contaminating her with religiosity and I'm convinced that's what God is calling you and I to do today but it requires choice choice in the words of Joshua choose you this day whom you will serve as he watched Israel being contaminated by the gods of the Canaanites he noticed that Yahweh was no longer the priority but they will be, he was being substituted by the other gods in the Canaanite religion and he says choose you this day whom you will serve whether you serve the gods on the other side of the floods of your father in whose land you dwell but I just want you to know as for me and my house because Joshua says I've been at this crossroad of choice before See, when Moses sent us 12 spies into Canaan, only Caleb and I came back with a positive response. We had to choose. Are we going to hang out with the 10 who came back and said, we can't get the land, there's giants over there, and they told themselves, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Or do we make a choice and stand with God and joshua and caleb says yeah they're giants in the land but god promised us and god said and because of that we're going on in jesus name and that's what happens to this woman's life she makes a choice and i want to ask you are you tired are you tired of staying at the crossroad? Are you tired of just day in and day out? Should I or should I not? What should I do? Should I go to the left, go to the right? Should I go back, should I go forward? Aren't you tired of that? Are you tired, in the language of Fannie Lou Hamer, of being sick and tired? Maybe not. But me and my house, we going forward. Because if I go forward, There is something there waiting on me called destiny. Father, somebody in the house today needs your divine word.